0: The sun machine is coming down, and we're going to have a party. So sang David Bowie on his 1970s song, Memory of a Free Festival. And he was singing that song about a particular day that he'd spent the year before at a free festival. The free festival that had been organised by the Beckenham Arts Lab on Croydon Road Recreational Ground in Beckenham, the 16th of August 1969 deep in the heart of countercultural territory welcome this is the Bureau of Lost Culture I'm Stephen Coates and I'm ready then about you for another wonder another trip another journey through the heart of the counterculture and the subject of this episode is kind of the free festival Now, what is a free festival? Well, in the UK, you could say that goes back an awful long way. I mean, Bartholomew Fair, which was held in Smithfield, right in the centre of London, ran for over a thousand years until the Victorians did for it. But they went back much, much further than that, to prehistoric times. Sites like Stonehenge, as we're going to hear about later, and Avebury, many of the stone circles throughout the British Isles, seem to have been the sites for festivals where people would come together, tribes coming together, to celebrate life and death, to feast, to dance, and to listen to music and each other talk. Not that much has changed, you could say. And certainly in the UK, the free festival scene of the counterculture years, the late 60s and 70s through the 80s, maybe even into the 90s, kind of metamorphosised, I suppose, into the whole festival scene of Glastonbury and all those others that we have every summer here, or did at least, until Covid struck. And the person who's going to guide us through this strange world of free festivals is somebody who probably knows it better than most. He's turned up, played, performed, produced, programmed, I guess hundreds of them over the years, either himself in his punk anarchic Celtic band, Tofu Love Frogs, or as the cultural artistic director of Continental Drifts, the biggest programmer of alternative arts acts in the UK. We're also going to take a side journey off into the lost culture of squatting and concerts in squats which happened throughout the 80s and into the 90s and also to investigate what were new age travellers, what was the peace convoy, the TP people, spiral tribe, all these other lost, possibly not, lost remnants of the counterculture which existed not just in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s but they're still going some of them. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome... To the Bureau of Lost Culture, that space pirate, that rascal, that musician, DJ, curator, programmer and all sorts of other things. Chris Tofu, Chris McMeeking, Chris Continental Drifts. Hello,
1: Chris. No <laughs> <Good> no.
0: <laughs> well, well, welcome. Step inside the Bureau of Lost Culture and take a seat. Well, I hang out my whole life. Uh, so who is Chris Tofu? Who is Chris McMeekin? You tell us who you are. I am
1: from Torquay in Devon. A long time ago, I moved from there to London and almost instantly joined a hardcore squatting Celtic punk rock New Age traveller madness band and jumped into that whole world for years. That went on for a long time and we went to all the squats and hardcore anarchist places all over Europe for 10 years. Had a crazy time, but amongst all of that was really where we, we really had a passion for like the festivals and the free festivals that were coming along in that time. Pulling into fields and setting up stages and doing whole festivals and stuff like that, you know, and that went on for ages. And then, uh, yeah, it's still reflected in great places, you know. Reclaim the Streets came along, and now they're still doing Extinction Rebellion. You know, I love all of that. And st- you're
0: still here, right? You're still, you're still deep in the counterculture, aren't you?
1: God, if I can be,
0: yeah. What is it, though? What is counterculture?
1: Having haven't just come out of five years of Donald Trump, who hated counterculture and anything liberal and free that came out of the 60s. I do believe that, you know, things like uh, Woodstock, all those hippie bands, that kind of lifestyle, that proto-commune thing like at Findhorn. All of those things came together in some sort of way in the 70s uh, and uh, 80s. You know, the first green field, the first time the word green was used was at Glastonbury when they made the green field. And then a couple of years after that, everything was greenness and that green You know, all of those things, punk rock, all of those kind of non-mainstream thought patterns mm-hmm. obviously had a effect on me when I was a youth.
0: You mention Reclaim the Streets and Occupy and all that. And, you know, we often talk about counterculture, talked about it many times on this programme, you know, being 50s, 60s and 70s, maybe 80s. But in fact, it is still going on, isn't it? And one of the things which has come up time and time again is that, you know, maybe 67, 68, 69, you know, when that Bowie song about a free festival was written you know maybe that was its heyday in some respects but as it went into the 70s got a bit darker got a bit dirtier but also the political activism sort of kicked up and a lot of that stuff gay movement women's movement the green movement that activism really got going then and some of that stuff as well as the free festival stuff carried through the 90s and is still going on now isn't it
1: yeah, they always say, like, oh yeah, then after the then, oh yeah, look at um the Rolling Stones Altamont gig and that's the end of the hippie. That was that was in Altamont. <laughs> Thousands and millions of people have still been inspired and kind of, you know, where did that 60s thing come from? Somewhere else. There was hippies in the 1850s, 1650s, <laughs> 1750s, you know, like the levelers.
0: You know what I mean?
1: Not the bands, the actual people.
0: I do. I mean, I'm glad you said that because it's come up again time and time again. You know, it's whenever there's a culture, there's a counterculture. One sort of breeds, generates the other. Now, you've been, as I said, deep involved in all those festival scenes and community action and, you know, all that stuff. Fairs and groups and all that stuff. But it goes back a long way, as I was saying earlier, isn't it? All the way in this country, anyway, these islands. I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, prehistoric times. It's not a new thing, is it?
1: Totally mushroom taking druids and crazy people you know that's all they had to do you know yeah i mean <clears throat> you know some of these ancient sites didn't just have like 30 people standing around them. stonehenge had thousands of people going to that gig <laughs> back in the day every solstice every week was a some sort of celebration of stonehenge you know yeah it went on forever and ever i mean and and like i think what happened was i mean here's a theory during the Second World War period, uh, after the, licensing was brought into the UK during the Second World War. Licensing, as we know it now.
0: before Like licensing of, of booze, you mean?
1: And events. And uh, I think that, you know, some, something happened where maybe even from the end of the Victorian period all the way up to the 60s, where those sort of vibes were held right down. They had wars... They had complete control of the media, they had, which they did for a long time, you know, like the the, the ruling classes, as it were, you know what I'm saying? And then, because if you look at even early Victorian and and mid-Victorian crazy, you know, Widdicombe Fair, they were all pretty major events. You know, people went crazy and they looked forward to those events. And then that sort of like got de-paganized between two world wars and, and the end of the Victorians. And I think those people are kind of rediscovering the fact that, yeah, humans can actually do this. Do you know what I mean? It'd be like coming out of COVID. Humans can actually hang together and have a big
0: vibe. (laughs) I was talking, uh, mentioned earlier, and um, I was talking with a friend last week about Bartholomew Fair, which happened, you know, in Smithfields um, every single year for over a thousand years until the Victorians did for it. Sting. And it was the same stuff that annoyed them, that made them stop it, you know, immorality. Paganism. Paganism, you know, people gathering together, getting rowdy, getting licentious, getting sensuous, staying up late, doing intoxicating substances of various sort, wild dancing all the things which, all the accusations which got levelled at the festivals in the 80s and 90s. But I was wondering, in terms of like, you know, the 60s, particularly that kind of countercultural time, whether in some ways what was going on, you know, created a kind of renaissance, you know, where the free festival could start up again.
1: All down, everyone gets together and has a really sort of a mental time they couldn't possibly have anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that collective experience, yes. Yes, I think there was a lot of that reclaimed in the freedom of people just doing stuff, turning up in a field and making that stuff happen and finding out what that collective consciousness was. I can't speak for 1890 or 1870, or you don't get the feeling that that sort of collectiveness was there. It was a bit more institutionalised collectiveness. How did
0: you even begin this thing? How did you, what was your first experience of a festival?
1: To be honest, what happened was I was going to this school and the biology teacher was a um, Quaker, right? And as part of her religious studies, bless her, bless that lady when I was about 15, she ran a trip to Glastonbury Festival to meet the Quakers. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was 15, I went to Glastonbury Festival with this really dodgy square school. And I didn't even think, think she'd thought it through. And like three of the kids got lost off the coach trip. We saw um, uh, Jackson Brown and Judy Zook, like <laughs> little kids and had a good old look around. It was just amazing, you know, and it was mind blowing. And at the same time as that was happening, Um, Everybody was like, Stonehenge. Everyone's going to Stonehenge. It's a month long, it's a free festival. Anyone can go. You can just go straight onto the field of Park up. There's an agreement between the local authorities. You'll be there for a month. Uh, You know, it was just like madness. It was like, really?
0: I mean, Glastonbury now, or would be if COVID wasn't happening, it would be happening, you know, every year. It's become a kind of national institution, hasn't it? A gigantic gathering, you know, possibly some people say, you know, commercialised, you know, half of London seems to kind of up sticks and go down to Wiltshire for for a few days. Um, I guess when you went, when you were a kid, it was a very different kind of thing, right?
1: Nothing beyond uh, theatre cabaret in the main stages, really, and the acoustic stage, and the kids' area. That was it, but it was still pretty bloody radical for its time. You know, I mean, for someone from here, it was like, good God, that was... It. Even they had all of these rasters putting the weed in newspapers and selling it to you, like, and it, there was no police on site. And it was, you know, Michael and Emily and, or, you know, his family and everything. They're not actually, like, big drug takers or anything like that, but for some bizarre reason... There was no police presence, so it was much more of a, you know what I mean? And you could have motorbikes, which was fantastic. <laughs> people had dogs, you know. It was, it was much more uncontrolled, and there were no bridges across the dikes either, so people would fall into the shit all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, that, so do you reckon that lit your fuse in some way?
1: It definitely lit my views. It definitely 100% lit my views. And I remember when I was leaving there, before we had to wait around in a coach for eight hours for some guy called Jeremy to come back to the coach or whatever, um, uh, thinking, who the hell would organise any of this? They must be off this. Nuts. Crazy. There was no... Also, the beautiful thing about Glastonbury in those days, there was no security in the same sense that we know them as now. They were all volunteers for CND or whoever, and they were really lovely.
0: (laughs) It was a kind of CND festival, right?
1: Yeah, it was much. It was much different.
0: Right. So when you're there, you hear about Stonehenge and Stonehenge Free Festival. Of course, it's kind of the classic archetypal free festival in Britain. Anyway, that got going in sort of '74 after the Windsor Free Festival, which went for a couple of years, which I think was the one that really kind of kicked things off. And that had been brutally closed down by the police in 74. So uh, which year of Stonehenge was your first year there?
1: Jesus Christ. So I think the main troubles there was 1984, so it's probably about '82, '82 yeah, early with like a bunch of us going in a car, a bunch of 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds in a car. We went up there uh, on bikes as well. You know, we got there probably about a week before solstice, but even by then there was like 30,000, 40,000 people in there. There was no toilets. You know, only responsible traveller people knew what to do, their, to do with their shit. You know, we were straight into the woods, breaking off green trees to make a fire and leaving rubbish everywhere. You know, it was chaos. But people told you what to do as well. If they caught you doing that, they're like, no, you can't do that. Is that you had a bunch of people really seasoned, living in vehicles, been doing it for fucking years. Some of them related to the traveler gypsy community, some of them related just to the sixties thing. And they were like there at that gig as well. They, were, they had their like leaders, like the Sid Rawls guy, who I think is still alive. Uh, he, you know the, These were like hippies walking around semi-naked with a big chillum hanging off their waistband and shit like that, you know? (laughs) And then there was like this kind of nasty, nasty Hells Angel invasion then as well. So when you went through the front gate, they were all like these kind of snarky, bullshit Hells Angels. And then uh, once you got into the festival, it was just a complete head trip because nothing was like, it wasn't like main stages, it was everything was DIY.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. It's just difficult to conceive of these days when everything's so organised, isn't it? I mean, you know, I've no idea how the, that sort of thing would come about spontaneously. Obviously, it wasn't spontaneous, but it was DIY. It's people coming together, putting it together. But, I mean, who were they and how, why, when?
1: The people, of, I mean, first of all, the people of Amesbury have had a thing about going up there for for... for you know, since it was built. The locals, they've always had their torch. The Victorians had really big torchlight processions up there and stuff like that. You know, back in the 60s, uh, mysticism came alive. Everybody started taking English psychedelics. Hawkwind were around pink fairies, but they were kind of like anarcho-punk psychedelic space pirates. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So there was that massive increase in, you know, that kind of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of that stuff, that that renewed increase in English mysticism that drove a lot of those original hippies to do that. Now, I guess when it first began, a lot of it was organised from squats in London, um, Tavistock Square mm-hmm really activist squatter scene there, where a lot of the originators of the original Age Festival as a counterculture event. This New Age Traveller thing is, was always a little bit, yeah, mainly like a bunch of squatters and a bunch of people who are living in fields, and they didn't necessarily have the same requirements. So, uh, yeah, that's how that came together anyway. I think.
0: Right, so people in London, as you say, there was that kind of whole West London Ladbroke Grove a uh, bit more kind of activist political side of counterculture in London. I had Pete Jenner uh, on the show, and you know, he was very instrumental in that International Times, the Free School, the events at the Tabernacle with Pink Floyd, who he was managing. Also, he he came up with the idea of the High Park Free Festival and got that going, so he was a pregenerator of all this, right? What a genius! Uh, yeah, those sort of characters and stuff. And then, you know, as I mentioned, that Windsor. Fest Free Festival which ran for two years that was kind of like the first big one and violently repressed
1: Yes of course yes that that's kind of like was the seminal moment and creation of this you're the enemy the dirty long-haired bastards thing right?
0: right I mean so Stonehenge got going I'm sure it started off small and got big that Ford Windsor which is set up by those two amazing guys uh, Ubi Dwyer and Sid Rawl I think they're activists and they're involved with squatting but by the time you got there it had grown to like there was 30,000 people right? Easily
1: Then you got all the army, then you got all the day visitors. And then you got this whole kind of like uh, weekenders, not weekenders. And and that kind of was when they had the brew crew. Crazy element inside of that whole movement that got everybody into loads of trouble. And and, I knew many of them.
0: Called the brew crew, because of special brew, they're rather heavy, alcohol. And they were pretty heavy, weren't they? It was sort of like a darker element coming into that festival scene. So, it? yeah, the,
1: the the Hells Angels, they, um, they had a heroin dealer on site. Really, really bad thing. And, like, because it was acting as a communal event, then a load of people decided they didn't want to have that heroin on site. Who would? I mean, totally in agreement. there. And they burnt down this ice cream van that was selling heroin with the Hells Angels, I think. I can't really remember the full story. Gave a chance for the brew crew to populate.
0: Yeah, and that was a sort of heavier anarchist scene. They were sort of hassling people and taking whatever they fancied and all that sort of stuff, weren't they? But but it's said that Stonehenge got to be as big as 100,000 people. I mean, why was that?
1: Glastonbury was not on during that period. The best alternative to Glastonbury was Elephant Fair, which, and the Druids, and all of that. And, and to be fair, with coming back to that sort of, uh, you know, that mystical tribal feeling when everyone gets together in a field in England, which maybe people had for thousands of years and then they didn't during the Victorian and wartime. Um, yeah, it did really create an incredible atmosphere. Incredible, weird atmosphere
0: yeah i mean especially if you're if you're young
1: (laughs) taking any drugs but obviously
0: things got quite heavy at times Talked about hell's angels heroin the brew crew the other big um sort of accusations which were laid against it was i guess environmental damage unfettered drug use you know uh kids being there I guess but also you know it's this archaeological site I mean Stonehenge now I think after the Tower of London it's the most visited tourist attraction um, in the UK Uh, so obviously archaeologists may be a bit up in arms about what was going on there but you were saying that amongst all that and there was a kind of DIY self-policing culture going on too maybe some of the older people who'd been hippies and stuff. They were watching out for maybe kids like you just come along, and also trying to kind of guide people and try and set up some standards, hygiene or otherwise that kind of made it made it all work. Yeah, so
1: yeah, yeah, very much so. If you, and and also it was like stuff. It was super sociable. And it was amazing, really. But it was also at the same time terrifyingly scary. <laughs> I've never seen such stuff. But it, I never we never came to any harm. And actually had an amazing time. And the solstice thing was off the scale what happened no one went on the stones until solstice day solstice day or eve or whatever you call it and then everyone just approached the fence and took it down and that went on for years and it's like uh, and people were very respectful druids could do their thing you know after that everyone withdrew I mean, it could still happen now, really. I and mean, lots of there are festivals happening all around Stonehenge now. Mm. And they're encouraging it now.
0: But when you said that you were scared when you first went there, what were you scared of?
1: You, well, I'll tell you what it was coming from a small town, going there, then getting lost at that event a lot. Do you know what I'm saying? And mm. uh, back in the day when you didn't have a phone, that getting lost, probably for me now, would be like, yeah, great. Do you know what I mean? But it was kind of a loss of connections. You could lose people for a day in the day before phones at festivals. So you sort of like got more deeply into it, especially if you like, you know, if you're having some sort of experience or something. So I found that quite scary there at some stages. But then uh, other times it was just like completely amazing. It was just a different world, really. But it was out of that came many different little ones that were also amazing.
0: Let's talk about the people, a bit more about the people behind it. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by it. It's like um, you said there's people from London, but also, you know, what did these people do? The so-called New Age Travellers, as they became known in the peace convoy, you know, where did they live in winter? How did they set all this stuff up when it was time to do it? You know, what was their economy? And... Um, you know, was it hippies from the 60s and 70s counterculture had gone country counterculture and the travellers?
1: The real travellers are the Romanies and stuff like that, you know, and English travelling folk that go back years and years and years and sometimes they're mixed up with the fairground and circuses and stuff like that, you know, which I think, you know, is like a kind of like ideal for a lot of the people, like plastic travellers, like all the rest of us, as it were. I'm not being rude when I say that, I don't mean that. I just mean they come from a tradition and their families are from that tradition. Uh, At some stage along the lines on this whole story, the government passed a bill called the Criminal Justice Bill, or they went for this Criminal Justice Bill. We got involved in the demonstrations against that. They were epic. And uh, as part of it, we were thinking, oh, we need to go to Parliament and, you know, make a noise about all of this, because this is crazy. They tried to ban you know, music above a certain BPM. Yeah, and the whole thing about repetitive beats. Repetitive beats. I mean, you know, let's not have dance music, basically. But we saw the guys there from the UK Romany Gypsy Society and stuff like that, you know, and they were were not happy with us at all. Why? They thought that we brought all this heat down onto them and they were suffering. The traveller lifestyle... Styles. There's so many different ones, you know. I mean, there's a bunch of people who are going to be here in summer and in Portugal in winter, and then there's another bunch of people who are going to be here in summer. There's hundreds of people who travel around from festival to festival now in like Dodges and Mercedes and stuff like that, you know. And they're also travelers. Then there's the Romani gypsies who meet up at you know horse fairs and whatever. There's just such a such a great variety of people, but the ones we're talking about here are people who lived in vehicles or part of the time lived in vehicles and suddenly realized there was no place for them to really go out or do their thing and got on to pulling onto land and doing big free festivals. And the press called them new age travelers, and other people called them crusties or the brew crew or whatever. We 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 existed inside of that place for a while.
0: Stonehenge itself, the free festival, uh, ended in eighty four, and it was quite nasty, wasn't it? The um, the end, you know, the, all that kind of propaganda in the mainstream had sort of worked and the police moved in and, you know, there's this whole incident and quite nasty. 1,300 police officers against sort of 600, you know, hippies, travellers or whatever. 537 people arrested. They reckon that's the biggest arrest uh, in civilian times in this country and same year as the end of the miners' strike. I mean, that's no coincidence, is it?
1: Thatcher. Thatcher was using the New Age travellers as another way to divert attention from the terrible destroying things that the Tories were doing at the same time. Exactly the same as the the miners, you know. I mean, it was all about they beat the shit out of the miners. Do you know what I mean? They beat the shit out of everyone at Stonehenge. with was such violence and, and like completely preposterous. I mean, I mean, I wasn't in that field of what they call the battle mm. of the field. We were in the area on that weekend but we didn't get anywhere near there. But, you know, it was just really, 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 really fucking awful. And um, <clears throat> but came of it, for me, kind of a limping to Glastonbury a broken Stonehenge crew at Glastonbury, which kind of developed from then, <laughs> became things like Lost and
0: Right, so Glastonbury kind of took up the slack, so Stonehenge ends, but then a lot of the people who went to it move next time to go to Glastonbury, you know, including the arts and the vibe and all the other stuff that was going on at Stonehenge Free Festival.
1: Michael, being a Quaker and a, and a nice guy and all that, he, he did... Definitely reached out to all sorts of travelling crew. In fact, the following year, the year after, he gave money to somebody inside that scene to go and organize another festival, which they didn't. <laughs> Myself, I was with the Toffee Love by then. Do you know what I'm saying? We were already dragging amplifiers under fences.
0: <laughs> this is a big part of your uh, next part of your story, isn't it? So you left Torquay, West Country. You moved down to London, living in squats, and you... You join up with this uh, punk band, the Tofu Love Frogs.
1: Right. No, well, it's more like an anarchist. Anarchist uh, band. Celtic, hardcore punk.
0: <laughs> and you uh, you become this kind of roving band of, of sort of anarchist punk pirates who break into festivals with your own gear to set up and play. Yeah,
1: exactly. Not only that, we could set up our own stage in the middle of a field in like five minutes. So, yeah, we were like... Uh, Deeply unpopular in some quarters. <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, um, yeah, there was a large community of musicians, performers, people who felt the same way about doing festivals in with no commercialization and, and also, there were other gigs around that were free that weren't like Totally Anarchist, like Strawberry Fair in Ashton Court Festival in Bristol, Notting Hill. Uh, the Carnival. Basically all over England as well, uh, which were free anyway. But these ones were really special and there was a whole sort of group of culture that was ready to jump up to that. You know, people, bags like Conflict, Citizen Fish, um blithe power all those early bands i think they used to run a stage at stonehenge at one stage uh so there was a bunch of this culture that nobody else was representing we didn't have a fucking hope in london when the toffee love frogs played in the bloody dingwalls the guy was like you are the dirtiest band we've ever had in the whole history of dingwalls just fuck off you know what i mean it was like that but that was like for everyone there wasn't really a place for us so we started making our
0: own stages, in places. Well, I mean, this is this is a lost countercultural uh, story, isn't it? So, a network around the UK of squatters and squats, with bands who were touring, going from one to the other, playing in the squats or breaking into festivals and playing or setting up stages in fields and doing it all themselves?
1: In London, Bristol, man, in London there was 35,000 squats or 40,000 squats in London, including squatted yards, squatted factories where people could park up all winter and stuff like that. So there was a very, as you know, Stephen, a very active squatter mentality, not ruining houses, but people living in those houses and therefore... Living more creative lives because they weren't just chasing their rent all the time, you know, so that that played a, you know, and, and, and the same in Berlin, Amsterdam, Paris, you name it. And they were all connected in uh, there's a tour, there was a touring circuit just off squats.
0: It's so amazing. I mean, I think uh, that's another story that needs to be covered, isn't it? You know, the story of squatting as a countercultural history. Um, it's difficult to imagine these days. I mean, in the 70s, I think for almost 12 years, the Cambodian embassy, after Pol Pot came to power, Cambodia, the, the Cambodian embassy in London was squatted. Uh, I think they kicked them out because after 12 years they could actually own it forever or something. Uh, but, I mean, that, that thought of all those people squatting in London... I mean, compared with now, I mean, the whole issue around property is so fraught. And you, I, I imagine, I don't know, that it's all it's impossible to squat, you
1: know, isn't it? To be honest, um, there's certain activists who are still active and have massive factories. And, you know, when things like pull into town, like uh, massive demonstrations, so they're still, you know, really helpful and they sleep hundreds of people and stuff like that. And there's there's a couple of people from that scene who've made that not their profession because they're not making millions of pounds out of it, but they've definitely made the approach to a local authority relating to empty property being used as a big thing.
0: Well, good. I mean, it's I'm amazed to hear it, but I'm glad to hear it that there are still people, um, you know, in London still able to do it.
1: Massive gap in Ilford at the moment, but the problem is, is so basically you will remember Stephen that Amsterdam was full of squats. It was like a bloody paradise down there there were so many alternative venues and stuff like that that you could actually do a tour of amsterdam that lasted six days
0: <laughs> amazing
1: and uh basically what happened there was that any empty property had to be um like um short-term rent straight away so that's what that's actually what killed squatting in amsterdam despite thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of people who protested Wasn't that? It was just that every time an empty property came up, it came like a satellite. You went and hired it, and and you sat, you you babysat that property. Well, that's what happened in London as well. They stopped. There's hundreds of them around, aren't they? You know, and Mm. that kind of not countercultural because it's being run by the land landlords and property owners. So it doesn't have the same effect as this house with 40 people living in it. You know what I mean? But
0: But I mean. That is extraordinary. That there was enough, and that there was this kind of alternative community of squatters, you know, with their own culture, with bands <coughs> like Tofu Love Frogs, moving around not just in the UK, but in in Britain and abroad.
1: Every country in Europe. They even had a magazine that we got hold of. Get this called Vogel Fry, which list- listed every single like traveler's site, and I mean like you know alternative people living on a traveler's site across the whole of Europe, with addresses and phone numbers. And you could literally send your tape to all of those people. Every single one of them was like per uh, incredible utopian paradise. <laughs> it just went on forever. went on for 10 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> like
0: an early kind of uh, Facebook for the counterculture. Well, for
1: me, it was like an endless counterculture tour, which I really loved. That school magazine, which was like a counter... You know school? Just oh. did- School magazine is the deepest countercultural magazine, probably ever of that period. So, you know, that's where Banksy's first stories were in there, and just all the really, really in depth research, researched articles. So, yeah, we were a part of actually going around Europe, trying to work out why the UK was so crap in comparison to, you know, venues in German squats where, you know, you stay in the bar and there's no barman. And there's 200 people there all just honestly putting their Deutschmarks into a little tin. You know what I mean? And stuff like that.
0: <laughs> what happened next? How did that period uh, end and go on to the next thing?
1: Um, well, the Toffees went on and on and on. And uh, basically, uh, really probably should have kept going, but some characteristics to the internals of being in a hardcore punk band like doing all of that. Uh, There was a lot of alcohol being drunk, which I've never drunk alcohol in my whole life Uh, because it just makes you crazy. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of that stuff going on. There was a lot of chaos, you see, so we couldn't really keep it going. Also, the manager was rubbish, which was me. I was the worst manager of a band. And I was playing in the band as well. In a kind of Bez time sort of fashion.
0: <laughs> well, that's fatal being the manager and in the band. But you what, so you're having problems keeping up
1: shaking the tambourine, were you? It was so fast, it was like 190 BPM. It was just too fast. So, yeah, but um, yeah, an amazing band, really good songs and really, really brilliant times and following and meeting beautiful people and just fantastic thing, period. But what killed it was the CJB. Castle Morton was the last.
0: Right, so Castle Morton Festival was this week-long epic rave festival in Malvern, and uh, the media got massively all over it, didn't they? And so that that resulted in the criminal justice bill being implemented.
1: The uh, Sun and the Daily Mirror were doing like weekly whole-page stories about <laughs> dirty scroungers still loads of really cool festivals in wales and all over the place it's more and more of the festivals that we kind of know coming along and when you went to wales it'd be quite often some guy in a bloody shotgun in the middle of the road in a country lane going what the fuck are you going to stuff like that was happening there was this thing called hippie watch there was just this general kind of like trumpian hate against people which you know the english are just as good as the americans are. And, uh, you know, so it got a bit a little bit harder like that.
0: Yeah, and it was, I mean, the you know, it was changing. Ecstasy was here, you know, techno rave music uh, was here. Different kind of people maybe as well, you know, getting
1: involved. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a big piece of the Jigsaw missing, which is, I sort of alluded to it when I was talking about Stonehenge and all these lovely old hippies there, and total total links to the 60s standing around in lovely vans and mm. In that lifestyle for ages and people like the peace convoy and stuff like that you know and then there and then actually when we were all coming along there was like punk and stuff like that but then with the punk and with the new age travellers came rave music which was antithetical um, to the old hippies as well a lot of them were like ah! And it came with a bunch of kind of more hedonistic crowd and could draw a load of people. So, um, I hope someone makes a film about Castle More one day because they really should. Because what happened there was off the scale with the police. I mean, they were incredibly good, they should have got a medal for a festival organization. of police, seriously, they.
0: Right, so the story is May 1992, the Avon and Somerset police try and end the annual Avon Free Festival that's been held in Bristol uh, on the bank holiday for several years. As a result, all these New Age travellers were en route to the area, they get shunted into neighbouring counties uh, by the police, and then the police decide to sort of get them all together on land at Castle And then all sorts of other people head for that area, including you. And, you know, up to 40,000 people were gathered there for a a full week long party. And it
1: caused quite a stir. They had Radio 1 advertising for a week in advance. Massive party happening in the countryside. New Age travellers. Yeah, it's going to be the Maybank holiday extravaganza. Radio 1. You know, police say there should not be a massive party, you know what I mean? We were 70 miles away where we thought we were going, and the police just directed everyone to that place. So, you know, I know later on that people from Spiral Tribe and stuff like that got busted for that gig. There was They shouldn't have, because they were taken there by the police. And I was at the front of that damn thing on my motorbike going, they're leading us into a, a trap you know what i mean we're all going to end up in a big prison you know and then i literally we got to castle and i was on this dirt bike and i was like yeah, it was amazing <laughs> but that was for me that was like for me personally the kind of zenith of that mm. we had the Wang, we were with the Wang riley stage which is like a sort of live music area and uh, we, were the, we put it up before anyone else and we had loads of bands booked and like loads of bands booked. And we woke up in the morning and Spiral Tribe had actually put the tent up so the tent pegs were resting on the front of the stage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Sp- Spiral Tribe, big players in all this thing. I want to read you this. This is uh, uh, the local MP, Michael Spicer at the time. New Age travellers, ravers and drug racketeers arrived at a strength of two motorised army divisions, complete with several mass bands and above all, a highly sophisticated command and signal system. However, they failed to bring latrines. The numbers, speed and efficiency with which they arrived, amounting at one time to as many as 30,000 people, combined to terrorise the local community to the extent that some residents had to undergo psychiatric treatment in the days that followed. Such an incident must never happen again, in my constituency or elsewhere. We need tighter laws, especially to give banning powers to the police. A cabinet committee to bring responsible departments together, quicker and more coordinated police action. And of course, what happened was the criminal justice bill. But I think we should leave that, because that's a probably whole programme in itself, the criminal justice bill. But for you, so you're not only now uh, Bears playing and managing the Tofu Love Frogs, you're putting on band stages and stuff. What what brought about that change?
1: The vibe in front of a stage is the is it addictive part about being in a gig as well, isn't it? Let's face it. It's how the audience is going crazy and chiming with your music. Always. Protest. Demo. Festival, late-night festival, that's where the real magic happens. Do you know what I'm saying? So in a sense, I think the band and certainly their manager was sort of committed to finding those sort of gigs, and we did loads of those. And then amazingly enough, we did one where we were asked by the people at Twyford Downs uh, who were putting a protest against know, the M3.
0: Yeah, the building of the M3, and it was went through that whole beautiful countryside, right?
1: It's a paradise, and uh, we made a gig with those guys. And because we made flyers and stuff like that, we were like, "So on this date, we're going to be coming here and doing a benefit gig for you guys." And then we, you know, that got around on all the on all the sort of paper mails and flyers and stuff like that. And would you believe it? They were like, "We won't be there." And we were like, well, we're, we're coming." And would you believe it? It turned out to be what an enormous madness. The exact day that the police came to take everyone out of the trees and knock all of that down and, you know, carry a PA over a mile of land and generate whatever, you know. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing gig. And then that started off a sort of dual addiction to the loveliest people on the planet, who were these people who are trying to save the world. Loads of great gigs like that.
0: Right, so there's... There's all sorts of people involved, you know, activists, all these different festivals, the different kind of spiral tribe, you know, there's people who are more involved in music, people more involved in putting stuff on. There's also, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, the Peace Convoy, so tell us a bit more about that, and also maybe um, these groups like the T P people, T P Valley people... Where did they all fit into that whole ecosystem of you know festivals and this kind of alternative counterculture going on in the countryside in, in the UK?
1: Really interesting people in the 70s, and you can speak to one of them, you should do a whole programme on it if you ever could. It's called Tibetan Tony. Great performance art people and street theatre people from the 70s, people who were more used to making their living from busking with street arts and circus as well. They formed this amazing traveling festival called Festival of Fools with some people you would love, Stephen, your style of folk, people like your man from Carbordia, these sort of people, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Producers from France, the early, um, all the original people from Archaos, a lot of those people were in that in the 70s, Pierre Bidon, all of those types. They did this touring festival called Festival of Fools. It went up to Holland, to Rhygord, and it travelled around. It ended up in Cornwall. I think it went through early Elephant Fair, but it ended up in Cornwall. And that was actually about 50 vehicles on the road. Do you know what I mean? Of all, of all ilks and varieties and stuff like that, you know. And then somewhere along the line, that, Tibetan Tony and his gang created this kind of peace convoy, which is also related to other activities around that time, in the 70s and 80s. And that that was quite formulative. And the Suffolk fairs exploded with festivals. Like, every single weekend in Suffolk alone were little fairs and festivals, that, you know. And um, they were really instrumental in... Uh, They were also instrumental in running Strawberry Fair. They were also Mm. instrumental in so many things. And so they were really important. And the Peace Convoy kind of was the first iteration of what they called New Age Travellers because there did sort of vaguely exist this Peace Convoy, which was this amazing, I mean, pretty amazing by the sounds of it. Like, you know, when it pulled up in Holland, there was clowns from all around the world coming to it, you know, Festival of Fools. Mm. And it it made really matter. The dog troupe, I think, in Amsterdam might have come from this and stuff like that, you know. So that was a pretty big scene, but that was more like, I guess, arty performer hippies buzz. So then there was them and. uh, The Teepee people? The Teepee Valley people, um, definitely. 60s, 70s idealists who moved out to the Talibans and Tally Valley and they're on to their great-grandchildren now. And uh they're, But they're still there and I think that there's a number of different places up there. They, they're
0: they still there. I mean, they're still managing to hold on after all this time.
1: It's never been an easy time. They've had a really hard time. But uh yeah, they've been going for ages, so they were there. But again, I think that's 70s, 80s.
0: Let's go back to you. So, you know, right now you run Continental Drifts. You are the veteran of thousands of events, festivals, fairs, gatherings, all sorts of other stuff. You put on loads and loads of acts. Let's get you to now, This is pre-COVID, obviously, but let's get you to now from then, from, you know, Tofu Love Frogs coming to an end... That festival scene uh, and the squatting scene uh, coming to an end as well. So, take us on that sort of trip between then and becoming Chris Continental Drifts.
1: So, they tried to make when the Criminal Justice Bill came along, previous to that one, before it had passed, it was saying that there could be no more squatting in private properties, yeah. Uh, I mean, we were living in the Georgian Crescent facing uh, Clissold Park at the time, and beautiful Georgian houses that <laughs> we had squatting for it, which was squatting, already been squatting for 30 years. So uh, we kind of did this lot of talking and blaring like you do and came up with this Hackney Homeless Festival um, along the lines that everybody who was squatting was also homeless, which actually was is true, actually. We said we were going to do that. Then we pulled all the people we knew together who could put stages and free stages and bands, and it, we ran the first one. And it was for like five thousand people. It was there was ten thousand people. We did the second one, and it was for like um, fifteen thousand, and there was thirty thousand. This thing just, honest to God. And then the count, there was a riot. Clissold Park was, was a war zone. And then the council kicks off onto Hackney Marshes. And then we did, again, we told the council it's going to be 15,000, probably about 35,000 turned up. And there was at least 25 different sound systems, free party, reggae, whatever you like. Whole posses that you and me know now. That was their first gig. Do you know what I'm saying? But it turned out that me and Mel, we were running it and we'd started Continental Drift at that time. We weren't running it, we were running it with a committee, but somehow it came down to me and Mel to make all the decisions. And then somewhere in that process, someone said, uh, oh, you guys are really good at production. And we were like, yeah, what's production? Do you know what I mean? So then we got Continental Drift together to try and kind of not only produce these gigs that were impossible to produce before, but you, we learned how. Mm. Also, um, get all those bands' gigs, all those underground bands that we'd worked with inside of that world, gigs, because no one was doing it. The only person who would play any of that music is John Peel. So we started an agency and started pushing out all those brilliant underground bands that we were working with for years, and now that's still going on now, right up to this disastrous moment. <laughs> <I'm> dying. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right, well, up to this disaster time, I mean, you've been at it full tilt, right? I mean, um, you know, Continental Drift's probably the biggest promoter, right, of that kind of alternative arts in the UK and loads of stuff abroad. Do all the big festivals and the little ones too. You also still do a lot of community stuff, a lot of free stuff. So <clears throat> what is it that's underneath it all? What's, what's you know, what's the countercultural spirit that is underpinning it
1: all so you know we're members of the institute of vibe engineers do you know what i'm saying and we've got like basic standards of vibe and nothing can get in the way of that otherwise it's not a gig for us
0: (laughs) yeah you still do a lot of low-key free small things too right yes
1: and young stuff and whatever stuff yeah yeah definitely
0: okay so Tell us about these standards then. What are these standards that link you right the way back to that kid at the uh, Stonehenge Free Festival with his eyeballs on stalks?
1: Always be amazed by a crowd. That's one. (laughs) (laughs) God damn, that's a very difficult question, Stephen. Because um, whoever you are and however, whatever gigs you're doing, you should still be open to do those, those, those gigs that mean something, that are activists, that uh, you know, try and change society, like Extinction Rebellion, like other stuff like that. You know, I think you should still be able to rock up and do those gigs. We we've never really, we've always been off main stage. We've always been uh you know dedicated to acts with their own following and you know there's some sort of like place and time for our music and stuff like that you know it's not like maybe what you do to a david bowie workout musically we are we we absolutely dedicated to the remix and always have been so when we were always doing celtic punk it was like serious old school celt music mixed up with hardcore punk and ever since that moment we've Continental Neldris and myself, absolutely, as you know, Stephen, been obsessed with the remix of Vintage and uh, 21st Century Sounds. So that's reflected in our music right now, and that doesn't need to be anyone famous. <laughs> as you know, you know, there's always these amazing hybrids coming along. It's that mixture, it's that openness to diversity, openness to, uh, to kind of like, you know, anyone from any culture doing anything culturally, <laughs> it's always been our uh, our modus operandi, you know.
0: You mentioned David Bowie then, and I started off with this, so I think I should read a bit more of it to you. The children of summer's end gathered in the dampened grass. We played our songs and felt the London sky resting on our hands. It was God's land. It was ragged and naive. It was heaven. Touched, we touched the very soul of holding each other and every life. We claim the very source of joy ran through. It didn't, but it seemed that way. I kissed a lot of people that day. I love that. <laughs> Memories of a free festival, you know, and he wrote that song about, uh, about, that, as I mentioned, about that festival in Beckenham, you know, in Croydon Road, and, you know, that's one of the first free festivals uh, in, in the kind of later era, and nobody really remembers it.
1: There you go. No one even knows that. That's what I mean. There's so much unburied history. There's like 100,000 people on Canvey Island. Do you know what I mean? There's, There's stuff that's hidden everywhere. That is why I think this is a great subject for the lost culture situation.
0: Totally. Well, listen, he goes on. Oh, to capture just one drop of all the ecstasy that swept through that afternoon to paint that love upon a white balloon. And fly it from the toppest top of all the tops that man has pushed beyond his brain. Satori must be something just the same. We scanned the skies with rainbow eyes and saw machines of every shape and size. It goes on. The sun machine is coming down and we are going to have a party. I mean, it's hippy-dippy stuff, but it kind of... Doesn't it capture the essence of the of the free festival? It's just whole really David' don't they, you know? <laughs> I think so, they do. He, he nailed so many things, didn't he, there, no, David Bowie? But, look, Chris, we got to the end, and, you know, I've got to ask you, looking back, surveying the landscape of all those fields and uh, strange roads and routes of the uh, of the free festival scene, and, in fact, all, all your gigs and all that stuff that you've done since. I mean, right the way back to that kid turning up at Glastonbury with his geography teacher, you know, when you go to a festival now... <laughs> What's it like? What do you feel like?
1: I'm, I'm, like, blown away by it every time. I'm absolutely blown away by it every time I go. The misses and everyone thinks I'm just, like, really boring, like some sort of mad train spot for it. But I'm blown away by it. And I can feel the stories all around me all the time. And... Um, I love to DJ at those places, as you know, as well, because that's kind of like, you know, the knowledge of how to whip that, what that crowd's expecting at that particular moment in a whole weekend. Doesn't matter when. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Thursday or Wednesdays and Monday are easily the best days. And, uh, you know, it still blows my face off, you know. Uh, and, And, you know, I always hate. Even if I'm just DJing at a gig, I will always head towards the production office and say hello to everyone and check out what nightmares they have having. But um, I love, you know, yeah. I really, 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 really love that stuff. I have no intention of slowing down the amount of festivals that I do. In fact, at the end of the day, that will be what I'll be doing. Do you know what I'm saying? When the whole world but Maybe a bit more around the world. I regret not going to more, Europe, uh, like, Burning Man, who I've known those people for years. I've got loads
0: of things to do right now. <laughs> I'm sure, and we, I'm sure you're just going to keep going and going and going. Um, listen, Chris, thank you so much. You came to the Bureau of Lost Culture, and you conquered. That was great. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I really needed to find somewhere to put that lost culture before it was lost.
0: Well, it's well, safe here with us. You know that. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> lovely Thanks, to man. See you thank you. So there it is, Um, the free festival scene, the squatting scene, activism, gigs, love frogs, everything else with Chris, Continental Drifts. You can check out Continental Drifts. I'll put the uh, link to them in the show notes Uh, and all the wonderful, wild, weird stuff that they have done and do and will do when this crazy COVID thing is finally done. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back. Next time with another story from the counterculture. I'm sure we should return actually to some of these themes, actually squatting uh, in particular. Um, such a rich, forgotten story. If there are themes that you would like to hear uh, excavated, reanimated from the counterculture, you can let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can also check out all our shows at BureauOfLostCulture.com. And of course, on all the major podcast providers too. You can enjoy them there. You can leave us a review if you want. We'd love that. So there we go. See you down the road in some future field. I was Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture.